You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome, listeners, to episode 13 of the Book of Nature podcast, a podcast hosted by three Christians who work in the sciences and enjoy talking about all things sciency. Uh, with me today is Todd Pedler, Associate Professor of Physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. Uh, Todd, what's new with you? Uh, what's new is the same old mid-semester uh, lack of energy. <laughs> <laughs> but, right. no, it's... Uh, you know, we're it's I, I'm not sure it's really mid semester. I guess we're about four and a half weeks in. Um, but I just gave my first exam today in one of my classes. And uh, that means I've got a pile of exams sitting on my desk and a weekend where I really don't want to be grading them. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I'd never had to grade, done doing know? that. I, if, if we didn't ever have to give grades, you know, uh, life would be so much more pleasant. That's, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, also uh, joining us is Dan Dawson, Assistant Professor of the Atmospheric Sciences at Purdue University in West Lafayette, in Indiana. Uh, what's up, Dan? Well, it's a little bit of snow out there that's melting, but uh, otherwise I'm sort of in the same kind of uh, boat as Todd, just uh, really uh, in the middle of the semester. It's kind of busy starting a new field program. Uh, just started this past week down in Alabama, the Vortex Southeast. You may have heard of it. Um, and uh, just trying to get everything ready for that. So, all right, kind of. Okay, and I am Charles Hackney. That's right, the Charles Hackney, associate professor of psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary, located in the desert oasis of Karenport, Saskatchewan. Uh, so, uh, let's start things off with listener feedback, which might not take very long, uh, because there's not much lately. Uh, Remember, listeners, we have a Gmail account, uh, bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com, and our inbox has been empty since uh, the end of 2015. So lonely. So very, very lonely. Listeners, <laughs> talk to us. We miss you. Uh, now, I'm not on Facebook. Uh, has, has there been any action on Facebook? Oh, I haven't checked. Dan? Yeah, I think we've had some... some uh post uh let me just kind of look through those here <clears throat> actually i don't think we've had any since the last time i thought we had so no oh dear okay yeah. nobody unless loves us. unless i'm nobody clicking cares. on the wrong thing here nope no oh, okay we're sad and pitiful <laughs> no please please <coughs> post and it's partly we need to uh we need to uh keep our facebook page updated and we really kind of haven't and so please listen okay so i can blame you yes you can blame <laughs> blame me All actually right. we did have a couple from i just now see them visitor posts the thing is the way they have this organized they are all on the different section now okay so we had a post from uh 
Brett Gilbert back on early February saying great podcast last week. Guys, keep them coming. Um, we had Danny Anderson um, saying that he really liked the podcast about metaphysics. Um, he wanted to ask about uh, Lawrence Krauss and his rejection of theories of everything. Um, and just making the point that he thinks it's ironic that his overreach fails on both science and philosophy. Um, so please, folks, uh, go there and uh, uh, chime in on, on our previous uh, podcast. We'd really love to hear from you. And uh, we will make the pledge to do a better job of keeping those those uh, posts coming on there and info about our future and uh, Danny does. Danny does uh, uh, demand that Charles. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Be a yeah. guest on Sectarian Review and uh, and talk about Hannibal. So. Yep. Ah, I, okay. I, well, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed their podcast uh, from a few months ago on uh, Halloween and horror. Mm. Uh, so that could be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've actually been in uh, conversation with uh, the host of a another podcast. Uh, a little bit of. Um, comment section uh, discussion going back and forth. Uh, I'm a regular listener of the horror movie podcast uh, because I'm a big horror fan. Mm. And um, I was having a discussion about the uh, the recent movie The Witch, which is uh, out in theaters mm-hmm. uh, right now. And you know, as a psychologist, I'm loving this movie. This, it's, um, uh, it's sort of being called This Year's Babadook. Uh, and that works. So the uh, the Babadook uh, is a horror movie uh, uh, from I think uh, yeah 2014 um, that actually was about uh, dealing with grief, and the monster was a uh, you know manifestation or personification. It, it stood in for the destructive power of uh, grief, especially unresolved grief. And the witch, uh, even though it, it's a horror film, there's you know the, there's a witch and there's stuff and it's spooky and scary and things. Uh, it's about the um, uh, the 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 way that uh, the loss of a child uh, tears a family apart. Um, so I'm discussing this and. One of the interesting things that uh, we kind of got into is that uh, he and I, are, uh, the, this, the host of the other podcast, he and I are both believers, and so we're wa- we're believers, and we're watching a horror movie about a witch. Uh, is that okay? Uh, so what 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 is what's the theological side of this and uh, issues like it? So that yeah, uh, I've sort of already got it on the brain to start talking about uh, horror films and. Uh, so talking about Hannibal, something like that, uh, that could be fun. Mm. Okay, so uh, Danny, if you're listening, and I know you are, uh, contact me. We'll talk. We'll see if we can uh, put something together. Cool. Yeah, yeah. and I, mm-hmm. I should also uh, – oh, go ahead, Todd. No, no, no. I was just going to say while we're on the topic of sectarian review, um, I had a couple of great episodes uh, with them uh, as one of the three. On uh, on on football, uh, the or what Danny called the football industrial complex, uh, which was <laughs> which was a fun show, and then we did one just very recently on the Christian film industry and and phenomenon uh, that that it represents, and so you should check those out if those topics sound interesting. Sure. 
All I right. didn't know. I didn't know you had been doing all that on the side. I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry if yeah. you feel like I'm cheating on you guys. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, well, as far as podcast goes, we have an open relationship. <laughs> there you go. Um, one other thing. Uh, uh, also, Danny has also commented on the LHC episode. As I'm scrolling back through this feed here, um, and mentioning uh, some what I thought was kind of an interesting quote here uh, from Kafka's: "If it had been possible to build the Tower of Babel without ascending it, the work would have would have been permitted." And he says he thinks this is a useful paradox for thinking about both science and art. Hmm. That's very interesting, mm-hmm. and also some uh, link to a uh, conspiracy theory video about the the Large Hadron Collider's apparently resurrecting oh, Lovecraftian yes. gods. So, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, so thank you, Danny, for uh, for being a faithful uh, poster to our Facebook page. And uh, um, and that's all we have for that, I guess. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So we do have some stuff going on. I feel much better now. Okay. Um, so our topic for today is research fraud and uh, misconduct. So to start off, listeners... Uh, would like to direct your attention to what is rapidly becoming one of my favorite websites. I have it in uh, my my daily feed, and I get uh, regular updates on it. Uh, if you are interested in uh, kind of the shady side of science and uh, you know researchers behaving badly, uh, Retraction Watch. Uh, we'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes. Retraction Watch is uh, a really exciting and uh, interesting uh, sometimes uh, depressing and soul-crushing uh, blog uh, in which the authors are um, they, they sort of keep us updated on uh, what art what research studies have been retracted and why uh, and uh, who's getting in trouble and for what and it, yeah there's just all kinds of stuff going on. So if you want to uh, sort of you know, keep track of um, une- unethical behavior uh, and, um, you know, some sometimes intentional, sometimes not so intentional, uh, Retraction Watch is a really good one to get into. But the, the fact that I've been paying a lot of attention to uh, a lot of to retractions has been, you know, putting this uh, on my mind uh, lately. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about researchers behaving badly. <coughs> now, uh, we're going to start things off uh, by making this about me, as it always should be. Uh, so let's talk about social psychology. Uh, the world of social psychology uh, was uh, rocked, might, might, might be the wrong word, but uh, we sort of have all... Um, Sort of, you know, collectively face palmed, hung our head in shame, uh, shuffled our feet and mumbled, whatever various reactions we had uh, over a, a, a completely over the top, egregious series of unethical uh, practices, um, all of which are laid at the feet of a social psychologist by the name of Diedrich Stoppel. Uh, so, Diedrich Stoppel. Uh, is a Dutch uh, former professor of social psychology at uh, Tilburg University. He was at uh, University of Groningen uh, before that. Uh, he uh, <coughs> got his Ph.D. in social psychology uh, from the University of Amsterdam. And um, he was 
he, he was established uh, early on as a rising star in uh, the world of European social psychology, uh, publishing a number of uh, interesting and influential and sometimes um, you know, controversial and politically um, hackle-raising uh, social psychology studies, uh, which is always fun, until it turned out uh, as a result of uh, a, a 2011 uh, investigation and he made it all up. Uh, Stoppel uh, committed uh, what what we would consider perhaps the worst of all scientific sins, outright fabrication of data. Mm -hmm. Uh, He just made up entire data sets uh, from thin air because he wanted... I mean, he wanted to be right, and he uh, so he would analyze. I'm trying to figure out the right word to talk about performing analyses when you're not actually <laughs> analyzing anything. Um, so imagine air quotes. He would mm-hmm. analyze this data and uh, published a bunch of findings, and uh, eventually somebody started noting, noticing that the patterns in these data are a little too good to be true. Hmm. Um a little too clean, uh, a little too precisely what he was looking for, and so there started to be an investigation, uh, and uh, yeah, this massive multi-year-long pattern of uh, complete fabrication uh, was uncovered (coughs) with tremendous um, negative consequences. Uh, So... He was uh, immediately uh, suspended and then later fired uh, from Tilburg University. Uh, The University of Amsterdam started uh, having conversations about whether or not it's possible to revoke somebody's PhD uh, for um, academic misconduct committed after having graduated. Hmm. So would that work? Would that not work? Uh, Eventually the point was rendered moot uh, because this had turned into such a big um, problem that uh, Stoppel went ahead and um, surrendered his PhD, um, returned his PhD uh, to the University of Amsterdam in 2011, Hmm. um, noting that, uh, quote, his behavior of the past years are inconsistent with the duties associated with the doctorate. So, um, yeah, so That's he lost his job. Mildly, huh? <laughs> yeah, he, yeah he, he lost his job. He lost his Ph.D. Um, uh, University of Amsterdam uh, started talking about the possibility of criminal uh, charges. Um, <coughs> because, or, or was it Tilburg that was in, um, starting? A, uh, yeah, Tilburg announced it was uh, uh, going to pursue criminal prosecution of Stoppel. Uh, he made a deal to uh, perform community service uh, in order to avoid criminal uh, prosecution. And, I mean, this was really the end of his academic career, as one might notice, uh, one might predict. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he hasn't been able to get any other academic job. Uh, at one point, and this is where, you know, th- th- this, gets, this gets fun. Uh, he had a job offer from an arts college. Uh, he also... Uh, or considered himself a, a um, uh, playwright on the side. Uh, so they were hiring him uh, to teach in the arts department. And, but the fact that, but, but when everybody found out, uh, and the media got a handle 
a hold on this. It turned into such a gigantic poop storm uh, that that offer was revoked. So now he, so he is completely blackballed from academia, <clears throat> and to make it even worse, there was fallout for people associated with Stoppel because Stoppel was the advisor for a number of PhD candidates, hmm. uh, and what he would do in co- so uh, some so that and uh, some colleagues. Uh, he would uh, uh, collaborate on these research projects and say, I will collect the data and hand the data set over to you so that you can analyze it. And then he would go and completely make up the data set. (laughs) So now we have um, studies that other people have run and uh, dissertations that other people have done analyzing fraudulent data. Hmm. So now the university... Uh, had to expand their investigation into people associated with Stoppel. Uh, now, uh, turns out, <coughs> uh, so, so there were uh, 19 PhD theses that had been prepared using Stoppel's data. Um, so now there's there you know suspicion being aimed about some of these. Um, uh, so far. You know, so far the, that investigation has come to nothing. Uh, none of them have had their PhDs retracted. Um, several have been cleared outright, so they were innocent victims just as much as anybody else. But I mean, can you know? Imagine having to try to explain that when you go on the job hunt. Yes, I published <laughs> this, and let me tell you why it's not my fault that it got retracted, and you should hire mm-hmm. me anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of retractions. <coughs> uh, the fallout from this investigation uh, resulted in 58 research papers of Stoppel's being ret- formally retracted, hmm. uh, which puts Diedrich Stoppel at the number four slot on Retraction Watch's list of most retracted researchers. <laughs> so um, how many total research papers did he have? That's what. Oh, how many total? I don't know yeah. uh, off uh, the top of my head right now. Uh, but... That's, uh, I, I that's would say pretty, greater that's than fifty. Huge. Yeah, it is huge. Yeah. Oh mean, wait, found it. Okay, research. did find that. So he has published in total uh, one hundred and thirty articles. Wow. So mm-hmm. fifty-eight of those uh, were proven to be the result of entirely God. almost almost half. half. Almost, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's incredible. <sighs> yeah. So um, he, he. So yeah. Th- so this is a social psychologist in disgrace. Uh, to the point that uh, I have been using his name as a curse word. Uh, th- this is a this is a practice that I picked up from a former psychology podcast. Uh, the the Psychomedia podcast used to uh, use Freud's word as the uh, Freud's name as the f word. Um, <laughs> so this turned into a big Freuding problem, oh, God. and I have. So I, I had I've picked up on that because I'm not a fan of Freud anyway, so I sort of like the idea of Freud's name being a curse. Uh, Stoppel has joined him in these ranks of infamy, uh, and I now uh, regularly use Stoppel's name as a stand-in for a curse word that I will not repeat here in the interest of keeping this a family-friendly podcast. Uh, I'll only point out that uh, the Stoppel has a tendency to hit the fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, flirting with that iTunes, what, whatever rating. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, yeah, not not yeah, not trying to do that. <laughs> trying to avoid that. Yeah. Indeed. 
Okay. Um, so yeah. Uh, so this was. I mean, this has been a big deal. This has been a big problem for uh, social psychology. We've uh, we we are all collectively disgraced by this. Um, and as I said, this uh, the 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 outright falsification of data is considered one of the worst things that a researcher uh, can do. Uh, so Todd, uh, well, um, turning to you for. Uh, the mm-hmm. first thing that's not all about me. Um, in the show notes, we're going to put a link to a comic strip that was published in uh, Perspectives on Psychological Science. Uh, so, uh, dealing with this question of uh, academic misconduct. So, uh, Todd, could you describe this comic strip for us, uh, and uh, including the punishments assigned to the different uh, forms of academic misconduct? Yeah, sure, sure. So, I mean, if if you're not if you're not familiar with Dante's Inferno, you might, I guess, you might find this uh, a little less a little less funny, I guess. Um, and just in short, you know what what Dante has done with Inferno is is create a uh, a, a picture of hell as having layers, uh, uh, circles that uh, the deeper you go, the worse the worse your your characteristic sin was. And within those circles, uh, he uses a, a uh, well a concept called contrapasso, which is which is the um, the appropriate punishment that fits the crime. And so he has a lot of fun in Inferno with with uh, matching up uh, creative crime, you know, uh, create creative punishments for each uh, for each crime. And and these. Uh, these folks and I, I, as soon as I looked at it, I thought, "Is this XKCD?" Because it looks like XKCD. <laughs> um, and and they say at the bottom, you know, with apologies to uh, uh, Dante and XKCD. So it's just this picture of uh, in the spirit of XKCD. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah. So um, so the, the the nine layers they have correspond to sins. Uh, uh, of various kinds, and so you you know you've got the outer layer limbo, which is the same and, and it has the same name in in Dante's Inferno, and then uh, the descending in order of severity, you have uh, you have the second circle is for overselling your uh, the importance of your data. Uh, third circle is post hoc storytelling. <laughs> uh, I, I presume we're talking about. Uh, uh, well, reconstructing events after the fact in some sense. Fourth circle, uh, Charles, you'll like this, is p-value fishing. Uh, you try every <laughs> statistical test in the book until they get a p-value less than 0.05. I was actually talking um, about that with my students in statistics class this morning. <laughs> well, you need to bring the cartoon in for sure. So I yeah. just uh, go, going real quick before we descend too far. The, with, <laughs> yes. yeah, with the third circle there, um, oh, yeah. I gather that meant – Basically, if you 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 uh, come up, you find some uh, result, and then you just after the fact come up with some I, some reason. Oh yeah, I was looking for that all along, or something right. like that. You yeah. know, is that what that's? I, that's what I'm gathering from, from the that. description, which is yeah. very brief. Um, I I think that's consistent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ah, uh, fifth fifth. Uh, circle. Yes, continue. Yes. Yeah, the fifth circle is is the creative use of outliers, um, who uh, just conveniently uh, pick. <laughs> Conveniently take a uh, uh, take out of their data sample the uh, the outlier which which will then 
which will then cause their data to look cleaner. Um, sixth is an outright, uh, you know, outright form of plagiarism, uh, which we all, uh, of course, uh, know is a no-no. Uh, the seventh circle I find interesting, the non-publication of data. Um, and I think we've touched on this before, and it would be interesting to to actually address it maybe in a sh- in a show. What do you do when you get a null result? There's so much of a a, a bias in some in some ways uh, against publishing uh, yeah. results of failed experiments uh, that uh, you know they, they, some people do some people do uh, uh, really consider this to be a serious uh, a serious flaw. Uh, because you don't you don't show the things that don't uh, that don't work out and and number one people go and try to do the same thing not knowing that it won't work, um, but also you know non data or a non result is a result in in some ways and yeah. so you know in particle physics we we actually publish this kind of thing all the time maybe too maybe maybe too much, um, but I know other fields it's a no no. Yeah, I think it, you're right in pointing that out because um, I have seen arguments on both sides of that. Um, I've seen, and I don't know if this is an official policy of certain journals, mm-hmm. but I've seen, you know, some people, you know, say that it's you're really disin- disincentivized from publishing null results. Yeah. Unless um, there, I forget what the criteria are where it might be normally acceptable, but mm-hmm. naively, at least I, it would seem like you should publish those. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get into this rest of the podcast, but is there some room for, for disagreement in science on what, on what some of these things, whether they're actually should be considered, you know, uh, I don't know scientific sins or yeah. or 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 if it's just at, at, if some of them could be considered just variation in mm-hmm. in the, in how science could be done legitimately. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if this is an example of that, yeah. but mm-hmm. it certainly at least at the face of it doesn't seem to be as in the same. That's why I'm kind of surprised it's in the seventh circle. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's pretty deep. It, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be nearly to the same level as mm-hmm. you know plagiarism or um even the the next circle which you'll yeah. get to um yeah and uh, partial publication of data so it or any of the some of the ones above they like p-value fishing or whatever yeah. so i don't know it just this one of the things that when i was looking preparing for this episode i was like well you know we got to be careful how much of mm. this you know it's just something. It's just something to think about. Well, so. I, I definitely think you know. I would reorder this for sure. I think plagiarism for me would go down right, right next to next next to outright fabrication, um, and p-value fishing would be down there too. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. But uh, so I mean, the the last two are partial publication of data. So you publish part of your data, the the, the part that you like, uh, in essence. Um, and uh, in that, and that's probably related to p-value fishing because if you only consider half of your data or some part of your data, uh, and realizing that you're going to water your results down if you publish the whole thing, then you know that's that, that's exactly the kind of thing that characterizes right. p-value fishing, I guess. Yeah, and that's not the same thing as not publishing an old study, exactly. you know, or no result. That it, it's it, it if you have a study where you know, some some of your data shows what, you know, your mm-hmm. hypothesis and a, and a bunch of it doesn't and yes. you don't 
then that is I think that's a totally different thing. I exactly. Just, yeah, I'm glad they at least split that up. Yep. Yeah. In yep. This. And yeah. so number nine is inventing data. Now, uh, which, you know, is clearly the, the worst, and that's the Stoppel effect. Um, the, um, so you, you asked about what punishments these, place, these, these circles get. And I, the one, I guess, that jumped out at me that I thought was the most amusing was this non-publication of data. I mean, whoever is the author of this really must not like this very, very much. Um, so in the seventh circle where you're confined if you do not publish your data – here, sinners are chained to burning chairs in front of desks covered with broken typewriters. Only if the sinners can write an article describing their predicament will they be set free. Each desk has a file drawer stuffed full of these articles, but the drawers are locked. Um, it, <laughs> it is, um, yeah, it's apparent they really don't like this. Uh, and, and, you know, that could also be taken as, as you know, just not almost like... <sighs> Like burying your talent too. I mean, you can oh, interpret yeah. it that way too. I guess I don't yeah. know if that's the way they were intending it, but like yeah. where you're given, you know, these resources and this responsibility, and you just don't do anything with mm. it. I maybe, don't know. Yeah. Maybe that could that I could see as I mean, maybe so. Um, the ninth circle, the punishment there in, in, in Dante's Inferno at the pit of hell, the very center is where Satan is, and he's trapped in ice, uh, or, or, or uh, and in, in, this, in this version too. He lies trapped forever in a block of solid ice alongside the worst sinners of all. Frozen in front of their eyes is a paper explaining very convincingly that water cannot freeze in the environmental conditions in this part of hell. Unfortunately, the data were made up, <laughs> which, which I, uh, yeah, I found, that's, that's great. I found pretty amusing. Um, yeah, so you know this uh, this question of of you know these the severity of these of, of these uh, uh, these sins of science. It's it's interesting to me. It rang a bell, and so I went and go went and looked up in a in a book called The Great Betrayal. Um, which is about fraud and science in general. Some of these things go back to Charles Babbage, you know, which is like 1830. Um, and he wrote a, a, a paper in 1830 called Reflections on the Decline of Science in England and on Some of Its Causes, uh, which is kind of a very Dickensian title, I guess. Um, but he talks right out there about forging you know, forging of data and trimming of data are are, are two of the things that he he mentions uh, uh, as as the most as the most heinous, and here we have them again. But uh, yeah, that was kind of fun. All right. Yeah, I'm actually uh, dealing with not really my fault non-publication of data um, right now. I uh, ran a couple of studies. Uh, I thought I had a really good idea. Uh, and you know, collected my data, and I found nothing. N no relationship between the variables whatsoever. Complete null findings. Uh, so I, I don't want to go to the seventh circle of scientific hell, so I'm trying to get this mm -hmm. out there. Problem is, nobody's going to publish it. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, and, and it, you, you could, like, one of the arguments against it, is that pub you publishing that or anybody, is that, well, that's just taking up time and energy and money that could be used for publishing work that really does show some something important or whatever. And now I'm not saying I agree with that, but 
but that's the argument. Sure. There. Yeah. yeah. And um, I know that for a while uh, there actually was a journal out there, Journal of uh, Studies in Support of the Null Hypothesis, uh, where you could mm-hmm. publish things like this. Problem is nobody read it, and so it um, folded. <laughs> it vanished. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not giving it, up. It, I'm not going to yeah. the seventh circle. I'm, so I'm, I'm trying to maybe you know turn it into a conference presentation or something get like it to that. A, get it to a conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A conference. Yeah. There you go. Um, although again, those are you know conference abstract abstracts aren't always read, but um, you know well, at it, least it, it will be out. It there. seems yeah yeah that, yeah. <laughs> it's it really does though seem you know because there, there's an, there's an impact of wasting time and money and resources, whatever, for those, I mean, Charles, you're insightful, but I don't know that you're the only one that might have thought about the relationship you tested. <laughs> um, you know, I, how many people are going to go out there to design something to, to look at the same phenomena and right. and and waste their own time? Yeah, exactly. And their subject's Good time and their subject's, you know, cookies but, and juice, whatever yeah. you get. And yeah, it, no. There's, and there's, if I've run more than one study and I keep finding no relationship between the variable, that is useful information to say, okay, the, it, these it, these are not uh, related. Exactly. You're right. Yep. Okay. Anyway, so keep plugging away. All right. Um, <coughs> so moving on. So uh, one of the things that got uh, that got me interested in this topic uh, was uh, in addition to. Uh, the fact that I'm a regular viewer of uh, Retraction Watch was the fact that Diedrich Stoppel uh, is a, was a social psychologist, uh, as I am. Um, now, I am way less familiar uh, with massive instances of research fraud outside of my area. So, uh, I, so now it's story time. Uh, I'm going to start with you. Uh, start with you, Dan. Uh, I'll hand the mic over to you. And uh, so, do you have any stories like this? Uh, stories. Uh, uh, in which a successful atmospheric scientist's findings uh, turned out to be a load of Freudian bullshtopel. <laughs> uh, I yeah about that. Um, no is the short answer. Um, I actually looked into this and I tried to pull up some high-profile examples. Certainly nothing at the level of a of a stopel, from which I can only conclude that we atmospheric scientists are the moral. Exemplars of science, as <laughs> clearly I suspected. We are, yeah, no, um, that, but seriously, um, I do think that part of that that there's not that I know of not any high-profile um, atmospheric scientists that have come up with that kind of uh, you know that that level of of fraudulent behavior um, is partly because we're just a fairly small field to begin with, so it might just be statistically less likely to have somebody like that, mm. you know? Um, but, uh, that's just hand waving on my part. So, so what, what circle of, mm. of, of, of scientific hell is hand waving <laughs> go, go to, um, I yeah, I don't could, know. It could but, also be that um, you're sneakier. Um, yeah, yeah, could be. <laughs> um, but, uh, that being said, there, there are plenty of examples of fraud or, or questionable research practices out there. Um, there was a, a example I was pulling up from Retraction Watch. Uh, interesting, I didn't even know this journal existed. It's called the International Journal of Biometeorology. Um, mm-hmm. So it's sort of like the intersection between uh, bio- biology, like animals and plants and things, and, and the weather, mm-hmm. which, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, but anyway, um, 
apparently there was this fellow who uh, tried to uh, publish in this journal by plagiarizing a master's student's thesis hmm. on the subject of the surface temperature of chickens. <laughs> So, of all the things to plagiarize and pass off on your own, nothing against that study. I'm sure it's very interesting and, and useful, but still, you got to wonder what, what goes through some people's heads. Uh-huh. Yeah, you um, pick up a chicken and you go, my goodness, this chicken is warm. Yeah. There's other uh, – there's an example, of, I guess, of a, uh, a Saudi scientist who tried to – who recycled a paper from somebody else on uh, – of how to extract uh, uh, water out of the air, you know, kind of like Tatooine-style stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was a recent uh, w- situation where apparently a, a re- uh, researcher did not properly cite previous work on a, the invention of a device to measure um, air quality and and so on. So there's, there's a lot of things out there. Um, but, you know... So every field has has this, um, uh, and you know we can get to this um, in, in the next question. So I'll just leave it there. But that, that's what I was able to come up with. Okay. All right. So uh, social psychology uh, still has atmospheric science beat on depth and breadth of academic malfeasance. Okay then. Uh, all right, uh, Todd. Uh, Todd, how about you? Uh, yeah. Your stories. Oh, so, what is your favorite? I use that more so more air quotes. What is your favorite <laughs> example of Fasanorius Fustularian physics file siliquence? Uh, mouthful. You. <laughs> what you does that even mean? Uh, I well, looked I, those I, up just I, for I, you. Yeah, I know. I can, no, I, I, I can judge by the context. <laughs> That's what I tell my my students. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so do I have a favorite one? I mean, my 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 favorite one, I guess, um, and the 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 depth of the fraud is is perhaps questionable, but it it dates from when I was in uh, in college, um, and that's uh, Fleischmann and Pons, nineteen eighty nine ish, Cold Fusion. Which maybe you you know you you've certainly heard of. I know Dan, you were but a wee lad, um, but uh, you know this is an example where uh, we had probably just as much um, just as much incompetence as true fraud going on. Um, the uh, the idea was that they claimed to have discovered. Uh, and they're really chemists; they're not physicists. Uh, they claim to have discovered a mechanism by which one could uh, ga- get energy out of the fusion of hydrogen uh, by chemical means. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, you know, it, 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 I do remember this. Yeah, it's, 1989 was, I think, when they mm-hmm. had their press conference. Um, they they basically broke just about every rule in the book in terms of how you know how you do scientific research. Um, they they lacked real real knowledge of nuclear physics to begin with, um, and uh, refused to collaborate with 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 others who might have the expertise that they sought. Um, they were unwilling. They were unwilling to to really expose their ideas to testing. Um, they were not very open about the uh, the mechanism that they uh, used, um, and really just they they kind of 
they kind of all the way around. I, there's, there's a great article on this that I would uh, like to post to the show notes. And uh, uh, I, I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting example. I mean, just bad science, just really bad science. Um, that's 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 one. And, and it's, it's pretty detailed and well and well known. Um, but there were, you know, there's a couple of others. There's there's another one that uh, from about 2000 uh, that I recall, a uh, guy by the name of Schoen, uh S-C-H-O with umlaut N, uh, uh, from Bell Labs. Uh, Bell Labs, which had, had no prior cases of fraud, no, I mean, they're squeaky clean as they come. Um, but this guy comes on the scene. He, he gets his Ph.D. in Germany, is hired by Bell Labs in 97, um, and... Uh, he published in 2000, he published five papers in science and three in nature. Now, if you don't know how hard it is to get papers in those, uh, those journals, I mean, these are like, they're, they're not for, for me, they're not, they're not really the, the top, 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 top journal that I go to, to look for things, partly because people in particle physics just don't publish in science and nature too often but i mean if you're an evolutionary biologist you're 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 aiming for that that's the golden you know that's the the, the golden uh journal um but five i mean even one you do one as a first author in those you're 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 great and in 2001 he followed it up with four more in science and five in nature uh and four more in nature Again, all his first author. So he's got first author publications uh, uh, in the number of 16 between 2000 and 2001. That, I don't know that anyone in the world has ever done that. Um, I mean, that's that's a crazy number. I should look this up. Um, it, it, outside of Science and Nature, he published uh, one research paper every eight days in 2001. Which is just absurd. I mean, even if you've got a lot of collaborators, you've got a lot of students, it's absurd. Yeah, that ought to tip people off right away and, there. And, and it did. I mean, it, it got him on the radar screen. He was, he was you know, touted as one who'd win the Nobel Prize sometime. Um, but the thing that called him out was publication of um, background spectra or background noise uh, 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 graphs that were too similar. Too similar to each other. So what, what was he doing? What he was doing was looking at um, or, or claiming to have discovered processes which would allow you to make uh, essentially replacements for transistors out of organic materials, um, which would be much cheaper, much easier to repli- you know, to, to, to make and would, would not have some of the restrictions that silicon-based transistors or germanium-based transistors do. And so this was going to be a big, big, big deal. Um, but in his basic, his fundamental uh, papers that he that he was publishing, it was noticed that um, that some of his plots seemed to have noise spectra. So again, we're just looking at a graph of a, a particular quantity, but you look away from the region of interest, and you see that this background. Uh, in the graph, this region of of, of 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 really noise, which should be characterized by random processes, um, looked too similar between several graphs in several different publications, and that was the that was the thing that that tipped them off. Um, and you know, why did it tip them off? Just to be very brief about it, 
if you if you've got um, some phenomena you're investigating, and you've got uh, you know you've got signal, but you've also got background in your data. The, the, there's no way that any two plots, even of the same quantity, are going to look alike in this background region. Um, it's just not mathematically possible. It's actually pretty easy to figure it out. Um, and so it was determined, you know, in in the end, it was determined that he had falsified data, uh, and he had substituted uh, uh, data, uh, you know, from one experiment or even one faked experiment. I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Um, in for, uh, you know, and to stand in for background for another. Um, when they went in to look at this guy to, to, to study, uh, to, to see what he had done, they found out he had no lab notebooks. He had no raw data. His computer apparently was claimed to have been erased because he lacked data storage space. This is a guy at Bell Labs, by the way. <laughs> this is not you know some guy working in his garage with his uh, IBM XT from 1987. Um, I, you know, just crazy, just crazy stuff. And so you know, eventually he's rung up and and, and hung out to dry. He's completely gone. But um, yeah, so, I mean that that that's another you know very very sad story. Um, just for the in the interest of time, I don't I, I, want, I don't want to cut myself off here at, the, at this point. But um, there's a great book by a physicist named David Goodstein, who you know physics folks will recognize as the originator of something called the mechanical universe on PBS. Um, he his book I've forgotten the title. I'll put the title in. It'll go in the show notes too. But he's got a he's got a book on uh, fraud and cases which look like fraud, which turned out not to be, which is a really really interesting uh, sort of leisure reading. So um, I'd I'd point people to that uh, to that book. But uh, yeah, in the interest of interest of time, let's uh, let's okay, move on. rolling along. So uh, we'll we'll turn now to the psychology of research fraud. So naturally, this one goes to Dan. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. so, uh, <laughs> you know I, I, I moonlight as a psychologist. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> why why yeah. does fraud occur? Uh, what motiv- motivates people to uh, violate scientific integrity uh, at such a fundamental level? Well, um, yeah, this is great question, and um, again, uh, th- I think there's a lot of reasons, um, but I I think one of the biggest ones, and I and I think. Lots of folks have put their finger on this, and in fact, I in the show notes we can I can send a couple links to articles about discussing this. There's an article in Slate from I think 2012 that describes this issue, and there's another one perhaps in the New York Times. Um, but uh, yeah, we can we can put links to those later. But basically, um, I think it, it a lot of it comes down to this ever mounting pressure. Um, well, first of all, to be clear, um, everybody who does this, who engages in this sort of thing, is ultimately the one responsible for their misconduct. But that being said, there are these external factors I think make that more likely to happen and make it more of a tempting prospect to commit research fraud. Spoken like a and, social psychologist. Aha! Yes. Um, okay. So you were you were right to ask me this question after all. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I think there's this sort of – we've all heard it this, – this sort of publish or perish pressure kind of out there to – in order to be successful in science and to, to, uh, to get a job after you graduate and all that stuff, you need to publish papers in peer-reviewed journals. 
And, you know, this is sounds uncontroversial. Sure. Right. But as in the past 20, 30 years or so, that has become ever more uh, heavy pressure. And when we have more and more people graduating with PhDs and fewer and fewer um, long term quasi permanent whatever jobs um, that are relevant to to the to their PhDs. And um, so what. This is just providing a lot of temptation, I think, for people to publish as much as they can, even if it's low quality. And in some cases, they'll you'll you'll get some people who will they'll push them over the edge and they'll start cutting corners, making stuff up, fudging data here, etc. Um, whereas if you didn't have such pressure and um, less of this sort of doggy dog mentality in in, in a lot of scientific. Uh, uh, centers these days, then maybe that wouldn't happen as much. It probably still would happen because humans are humans. But I think that's that's a uh, that's part of the puzzle there. So in short, hyper competitive environment these days. Too many PhDs, not enough meaningful jobs. Perhaps too much emphasis on you have to publish as much as you can. Um, less emphasis on uh, quality of, of the data and the quality of the studies that you do. Less uh, the emphasis on ethical uh, practice in science um, and so on. So, um, yes, uh, that's that's what I – my take on it at least. All right. Okay, so uh, speaking of ethical practices and uh, lack thereof in science – uh, for the last topic, uh, we'll just sort of open things up uh, for some, some free-form discussion. <coughs> so in a uh, recent article published by New Scientist, uh, Christopher Kimmel reports the results of a 2009 meta-analysis. Uh, and uh, this was of surveys of scientists uh, asking them about uh, their practices and uh, depending on you know, how broadly we define academic misconduct, so you know, how many uh, you know, levels of academic hell we're going to be uh, going to here, um, anywhere from about 2% to about a third of scientists uh, surveyed admitted to engaging in certain questionable research practices. Uh, Kimmel asks if there's anything that we can do to make science more virtuous. Uh, so, um, just sort of open it up here. So, uh, what do y'all think? So, uh, why why is this not working, uh, what we're doing now? I mean, uh, research ethics hmm. is a normal component of uh, the educational process, uh, but, you know, we, we still have people in, you know, admitting to uh, less than entirely awesome um, ethical practices left, right, and center. Uh, so what's going on here? Why is our current approach not working, and what, what might we do differently? Well, I think, uh, and I was going to... I was going to let Dan step in, but I bet Dan stepped out. I'm still I, here. He's got but got to <laughs> leave in a momentarily. But. You got to leave. Well, you, I'll, I'll let you swing the bat first then Well, before you go out the I door. I mean, I don't know what you guys thought about what I was just saying there about the uh, publisher huh? Paris attitude, but I think that fits in pretty well totally. with this. And yeah. I think if we, we need to change 
how we assess success in science and, and put less pressure on researchers in that regard. Um, and I think that will go a long way towards mitigating this, or at least that's my naive, you know, hope there. Maybe it's naive, sure. but um, that's what that's that's all I'll say there. Go, yeah. Yeah. No, I think I I think that that is a very real pressure, um, and I I think if you don't if you weren't to do anything about that, uh, all the instruction in the world wouldn't change anything. Um, you know, about how one ought to behave. Uh, and then you have the administration telling you, no, in fact, this is the way you have to behave. Um, so I think, I, I think, you know, something, something about, I, and I don't know, I, I don't have any mechanisms. I don't have any solutions for, uh, for this. I just, you know, I, I, I think if you, if you look at what is expected for tenure um, over the past 30 years, I think things have changed a lot. I, I, they definitely, and they've they've changed a lot at a place like Luther here. I mean, um, publication is still something we 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 aim for, and it, you know, if you're going to get tenure, uh, you should have some you should have some publications. But people are tenured without um, because the the research focus here is um, is more broadly interpreted. Um, Working with undergraduates on on real scholarly you know stuff doesn't necessarily get published. You know, if you're giving them a real experience, I mean, a serious experience, in, in you know, uh, bringing them to conferences and and, and so forth, um, you'll you know you you can be you can be very very busy doing a very very good job working with students and, and getting them involved in in real research, uh, but have a harder time publishing at the rate that. You would need to. I mean, but, in addition but, to that, we teach a yeah. lot. So more. you're saying that 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 kind of activity though does count a lot for tenure at your institution. It does, and and it, so it, it, it so does. I guess mm-hmm. that's great, and that's exactly the sort of thing that I think mm-hmm. should be more widely adopted. And, yeah, and that I, and, research yeah. output should not necessarily be so narrowly construed as you know sure. published articles, and so maybe that's a good way to do that. Yeah, I, w- I mean, I would argue for sure that an R one institution like Purdue is going to be different yeah. than a place like Luther, and the expectations should correspondingly be different. There, there should be more expectation of of publications. Yeah. Although I think I think it's I think it doesn't need to be as high, you know, as hard as it is, uh, you know, as, as as stringent as it as it is. Well, um, yeah, somebody, someone who is just starting the tenure track, this is obviously foremost on my mind. So, yes, I know, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. know, I know. But yeah, um, I agree. But, but so, on the other hand, I, I want to go back to Charles's point because you know he said that research ethics is a gener- is a part of the is the part of the educational process. It may be in the social sciences, but uh, in my experience as an undergrad and a grad student, it never came really? up once ever. Oh. We talked about it a little bit about appropriate practice in laboratory in, in, in you know, laboratory classes, and there was some emphasis there, but there we did not take a research ethics class. Um, we did not. Um, no, I mean it's largely sort of a you you know you assume that students know what's right and wrong, um, and and. Uh, you know, you just hope that they 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 do accordingly. Um, if you have a very good class in 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 laboratory 
uh, you know, in experimental physics, let's say, um, you'll get a very good treatment about how to rightly uh, determine reliability of your data, you know, reliability of your your your, your data and 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 of your conclusions, um, which goes a long way. Um, but in terms of actually spending a lot of time talking about the ethics of doing research, it never came up then. Now we do something here at Luther. It's it's an integral part of what we do, um, but I think we're unusual. And I don't know what you would say to that, Dan. I don't know. Uh, well, Dan had to uh, Dan had to take off, so it's uh, it's you and me for now. Just you and me. That's me. Oh boy. <laughs> I, mean, I know when uh, when I teach research ethics uh, to my psychology students, uh, I do a somewhat substantial section talking about research ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, although most of that involves uh, how to uh, ethically um, conduct studies involving human participants. Right, human subjects. Yeah, we, uh, we we yeah. we get mm-hmm. a little bit into uh, some of the more publication uh, fraud and uh, fabrication, that sort of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, even then, and you know, one of the things that I found interesting was that this uh, this Kimmel article in New Scientist uh, made reference mm-hmm. to a uh, study uh, that was done in the mid '90s, um, showing that uh, when students were taught uh, research ethics, um, they actually ended up more likely uh, to engage in cheating mm-hmm. behavior rather than less likely. Mm-hmm. So uh, e- even kind of an, an educational um, uh, solution might not necessarily work here. And so the, mm-hmm. the the direction that I take on this when I'm thinking about this, so it, it's uh, I, I found it. Um, appropriate that Kimmel asks what can be done to make science more virtuous. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to go a little James K.A. Smith here. Um, and, you know, more broadly beyond that. So uh, the uh, with the revival of virtue ethics um, and also, you know, some of the uh, current directions that moral psychology has been taking, uh, one of the things that we are increasingly finding in our uh, moral psychology research and also uh, that ethicists are working with in uh, virtue ethics and uh, the idea of character formation, it's that um, head knowledge of uh, ethical principles doesn't necessarily do much. Uh, moral mm-hmm. formation is just as much about uh, shaping uh, the affections and the drive, the desire. Uh, so uh, affect and motivation are just as mm. important, and in some cases perhaps more important, depending on uh, who you're reading, um, as cognitive uh, ethical knowledge. Mm. So I'm not sure exactly how this would work in practice, but mm. uh, it seems to me that uh, the way to make science more one way to make science more virtuous uh, is to make scientists more virtuous mm-hmm. by focusing uh, in some way and i haven 't figured out how to how that this would work sure. uh, this would, perhaps this would uh, you know go back to our previous uh, science and virtue uh, episode mm-hmm. um, to directly engage the the moral formation of students in the sciences. Um, using the things that uh, we have found out of some of the the virtue ethics and character education um, literature. 
uh, to instill sort of a um, kind of a gut level intuitive emotional revulsion uh, to the mm. idea of uh, academic misconduct. So rather than simply calculating pros and cons, what you know, how much trouble would I be in if I got caught? Um, yeah, to, right. to, uh, to to have that that visceral reaction uh, and to instill sort of on the more positive side uh, a uh, a deep emotional desire to be uh, the kind of virtuous person uh, who wouldn't do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I don't know how we mm-hmm. would incorporate. Yeah. A program of virtuous formation into uh, scientific education, but um, I, I do think it's clear that simply instilling, you know, head knowledge is not sufficient. Yeah, probably Clockwork Orange style training doesn't work. But but the, um, but it would be fun right. though, <laughs> as long as I'm the one administering we'll it, them not, watch. not the one receiving it. Make them watch videos of cheating scientists and. Uh... And make them ill. Now, um, it's interesting that this New Scientist article ends with this statement, uh, you know, that you've quoted, uh, teaching research ethics made students more likely, not less, to misbehave. Scientists say it's almost like they're human, Um, (laughs) which is which is which is kind of interesting. Um, I'm reminded of Romans seven, of course. you know, the, the the commandment came and 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 therefore sin came alive and I died. Uh, you know, I mean, I I suppose there could be a positive correlation between teaching and, and ethics and 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 uh, and misbehavior, but I, you know, it seems a little bit far fetched for me to say. Really, is the correlation that strong? But maybe it is. Yeah, I'd have to look up the study um, to see what the effect size was. Yeah, but um, you know, al- along the lines of. Uh, uh, of of a thought that just escaped my mind. Um, Had plenty of those. Where was I? Where was <laughs> where was I going to go? Um, well, oh yeah, no, you know this. It's a well known fact that cheating is far more prevalent now among students who are incoming into our institutions, right? And certainly present in our institutions. Uh, you know the 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 surveys that are done frequently. Uh, that ask high school students to talk about, you know, whether they have cheated or not in something. Uh, you know, we're we're darn near 100 percent now of students coming in. Uh, you know, I, I see numbers of 75 percent or even up to 98 percent, whereas 50 years ago, you know, that number would be in the 20s. Um, and, uh, you know, plagiarism in writing in particular is really, really rampant. Um, so I wonder if you know, with with that, with that being the input to the, uh, you know, the, the 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 machinery that pumps out scientists, um, I, I think we've got to really intentionally take it on at some level, however we might do it. Uh, but it's it's a it's a more challenging thing now than it maybe right. was at one time. Um, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't it be great if 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 revulsion against uh, you know they even suggest even being suggested uh, that one might cheat uh, would would ensue um, in a broader swath of population? I think that would be yeah. good. 
Yeah, I, 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 I like your connection there uh, with student-level academic misconduct and uh, misconduct among uh, professional scientists. Uh, it, it, the habits that we form uh, are what shape us into the kind of mm-hmm. people that we become. So getting into the habit of thinking that, uh, well, you know, it's okay if I cheat on exams or on papers in school because what's really important is getting this grade, and everybody does it, Um, increasing the likelihood that uh, if this person becomes a researcher, they start thinking, well, you know, everybody plays with their outliers and everybody, you know, creatively um, messes around a little bit with... uh, uh, their p-values and stuff like that, and and besides, sure. I really want to get this grant, and I really want to get uh, yeah. this uh, promotion, and I really want to get tenure, and and, and everybody does it. So uh, it ends up yeah. being this, you know, extension of the habits that one formed earlier. Right, right. It Tough is stuff. okay. Uh, go go ahead and uh, wrap it up here. Uh, so, listeners. Uh, uh, if you have some examples of uh, some really good, uh, you know, favorite instances of scientific fraud that, uh, that you want to talk about, uh, you can uh, post them in the episode's comment section to our uh, website, uh, christianhumanist.org. Uh, find us on Facebook. Send us an email. Uh, our email, once again, is bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so... Um, uh, for our next episode, uh, so Dan Dan had to fly. Uh, we we ran up against uh, time here. Uh, so Dan will be uh, in charge of next episode, and uh, uh, we had talked earlier about what uh, what Dan's plan was, and uh, what we're going to do, listeners, is uh, launch into a three episode series in which your three hosts. Uh, each get put on the hot seat and grilled about uh, their uh, research projects. Uh, so we're going to start things off with Dan. Uh, so uh, tune in next time. We will be talking with Dan about uh, his work. Um, so uh, the Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Sway Jimenez. So, on behalf of Dan Dawson and Todd Pedler, I am Charles Hackney. That's right, the Charles Hackney. Thanking you for joining us for another hour or so, inquiring into the Book of Nature. If you liked the episode, send us an email, find us on Facebook, leave a comment, uh, leave a review at iTunes. Uh, look for us next time when we start talking about uh, uh, Dan's research. Uh, until then, listeners, I leave you with these words of wisdom from Roy Nelson. I've never met a plan that I couldn't ruin with a punch to the face. (laughs) Goodbye, all.